You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual component of our events calendar, where we continue celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. I'd like to take this moment at the outset to acknowledge we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight on City Lights Live, we are celebrating the publication of Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, Published by Verso Books, we're delighted to have with us its author, Adam Schatz. He is someone whose writing we are huge fans of here at City Lights. His new book offers a close reading of the lives and works of some of the greatest intellectuals of recent times. Joining him tonight in conversation is E. Tammy Kim, who is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and co-host of the podcast Time to Say Goodbye. Very, very honored to have them both with us here tonight. Before we begin, I would like to let you know we'll be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase books. Also, want to encourage all of you to switch to speaker view just so you get a kind of a, a clean cut between the authors and avoid that kind of Hollywood Squares effect. We're also going to be taking questions at a Q&A towards the end, so please do post them in your chat function. So joining us now in welcoming Adam Schatz and E. Tammy Kim. Welcome to City Lights. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, happy anniversary to City Lights, 70 years. It's incredible. And Adam and I are so delighted to be here. Um, we also want to shout out Natalie at City Lights and Michelle at Verso for putting this together. And thank you to all of you for making time this evening to be with us. Um, my, I am so, so very pleased to be here with Adam Schatz, who is a beloved friend and neighbor in New York and a writer and thinker I greatly admire and always learn so much from. If you're a reader of long-form journalism or literary criticism, you've likely encountered Adam's work before in the London Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, or the New Yorker, just to name a few. Tonight, we are here to celebrate and discuss Adam's first book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, a beautiful collection that blends reportage, criticism, and memoir, but is quite difficult to classify. Each of the 16 main chapters of this book departs from the life of a great contemporary artist or intellectual to explore the great questions of our time, empire, exile, aesthetics, race, war, belonging, Adam invites us to revisit men we think we know, such as Edward Said, Richard Wright, Roland Barthes, and he acquaints us with others with whom we may be less familiar, Fouad Ajami, perhaps, or Chester Himes. I'm very fond of the chapter on Levi Strauss because it was just after its publication in the Lennon Review that Adam and I first met. The subjects of writers and missionaries have big overflowing lives. They are at once models and cautionary tales, and some of them overlap in thought as protégés and mentors or foes, and in reality, crossing paths in Paris, for example. They exist on a world historical scale, yet many of them struggle. What am I doing here is a question, Adam writes, that he asks of himself as a reporter. 
his subjects likewise seem to be asking this of themselves. Pankaj Mishra has praised writers and missionaries for its cosmopolitan flair and moral urgency and its refusal of conventional pieties. I would add only that the book, especially in its more personal chapters, reflects Adam's kindness and care. He takes his time. He sees what his subject is trying to do and be. He isn't naive, nor does he judge unfairly. I could go on, but I'll soon turn it over to Adam for a short reading so that you guys can get a taste of this wonderful collection. Um, then I'll ask him a few questions and we'll save plenty of time to take your questions from the audience. So please do drop them in the chat, Peter, and I will be collecting them as we go. And of course, please be sure to order this incredible book from City Lights. So here, without further delay, is my friend and the author, Adam Schatz. Uh, Tammy, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. And uh, thanks also to uh, City Lights Books uh, for sponsoring this event and to my publicist, um, Michelle, for helping to organize it. I'm just going to read a little bit from the introduction of the book. In 1990, I arrived in New York City to attend Columbia University with a vague and yet passionately held idea of becoming a writer, a novelist, a journalist, a literary critic, I didn't know, but the uncertainty in no way dampened my hope that one day I might be known as an author of something. Imagine then my reaction when, in a class on contemporary French thought, I read Roland Barthes' 1967 essay, The Death of the Author. This is a quote. It is language which speaks, not the author. To give a text an author is to impose a limit on that text to furnish it with a final signify to close the writing. The birth of the reader, Bart went on, must be at the cost of the death of the author. Nor was he alone, I learned, in seeing the author and his or her intentions as an obstacle to the reader's interpretation of a text, even to the reader's freedom. Two years after Bart's essay was published, Michel Foucault defined the author as, quote, the principle of thrift in the proliferation of meaning and as a figure of unearned privilege. What difference, he declared, does it make who is speaking? Quite a lot, you might reply. And had someone else published these obituaries, I'm not sure how much attention I would have paid them. The allure and indeed authority of Bart and Foucault were only enhanced by their dramatic disavowals of the value of authorship. But if the author was dead, what was the point of becoming one? Wouldn't it be better for writers, above all writers on the left, as I already thought of myself, to renounce the narcissistic practice of signing their works and to become as secretive about their identities as underground revolutionaries and thereby contribute to, in Foucault's words, the subversive proliferation of meaning? I was fascinated by the program that Bard and Foucault were proposing and by the philosophical anti-humanism they espoused. Their writings were dense and often elusive, but they were also elegant, seductively counterintuitive, and even sexy. Bart, in particular, was a writer of rare literary gifts, an author in spite of himself. Yet I could never bring myself to join the anti-humanist club for all its temptations or contemplate with equanimity the death of the author. It mattered to me then, and matters to me still, that Frederick Douglass published his autobiographies under his own name, seizing the power of authorship in a society where the enslaved were forbidden to read. That Antonio Gramsci's notes and letters had been written 
in one of Mussolini's jails also struck me as proof that authorship could be liberating. You could imprison the man, but not his mind. Knowledge of authors' lives and struggles, it seemed to me, could enhance and expand rather than limit our understanding of their work. As Jean-Paul Sartre reminded us in his 1948 essay, What is Literature? Writers are alive before they are dead. I agreed with Sartre, even though admitting this to some of my more theoretical peers would have been like confessing to a love of Brahms at the Darmstadt School of Experimental Music. I'll stop Thank there. You. Thank <laughs> you so much, Adam. That was great. Um, I forgot to hold up this book, which is so beautiful and so uh, well-designed. Um, as you can see, this, this title, Writers and Missionaries, Adam, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what it means, because there's also a chapter in the book called Writers or Missionaries. Sure. Um, so what are the concepts that you're trying to get across? Sure. Um, the, the, yes, the title uh, is drawn from that, that essay, which was a, a lecture that I gave about reporting in the Middle East. And uh, that 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 formulation, that um, that dichotomy between writers and missionaries, between people who describe and analyze and those who who are more more like advocates or evangelists for a position, uh, came to me um, in the, the early aughts, actually shortly before 9-11, when the New York Times Magazine asked me to interview um, the 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 Nobelist uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning author V.S. Naipaul. Uh, whom I admired as a writer, but whose politics I despised. And uh, I spoke to him uh, about his views on Islam. It was just that it was perhaps a month or so after after mm. uh, the attacks. And and uh, he defended himself by saying that at a certain point, you have to decide, are you a writer or a missionary? And this was his way of saying that uh, he was merely speaking the truth um, uh, about Islam rather Rather than um, dressing it up and in, 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 in pieties and rationalizations. Now, of course, the truth is that, you know, if, if anyone was a missionary um, when it came to the subject of Islam, it was uh, V.S. Naipaul. He was, he was uh, you know, in his late years, a Hindu nationalist and quite hostile to Islam. Um, but at the same time, I, I found the formulation interesting and it, and it stayed with me as I was reporting in the region. Um, I decided, however, to change the title to Writers and Missionaries because I don't I don't see it as a hard and fast a divide. I think we're always, you know, a, a little bit of a little bit of both more one than the other, depending on the occasion. But it's a it's, I think, a tension that anyone who writes on matters of politics and aesthetics uh, has to has to has to um, has to confront, um, you know, whenever they sit down at their desk. Thank you. And. Maybe you could give us just a brief, um, some brief background in the selection of the pieces and the way they're organized in the book. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that there are 16 primary chapters and the subheadings are, are very interesting. Native sons, equal in Paris, signs taken for wonders and lessons of darkness. Tell us a little bit about those. Sure. Most of these essays, I should say at the outset um, were pieces that were commissioned by magazines that that I write for um, and were previously published in much the same form, although there there were I did make revisions and, and actually published one chapter in a, in a different form, the, the, the longest chapter in the book, which is on Richard Wright. Um, the, the first uh, uh, the first section is about uh, Arab intellectuals, um, Arab intellectuals whose work in some way 
speaks to um, issues having to do with um, the Arab revolts of, uh, that began in 2011 or um, the legacy of American empire in the region. I'm thinking of the piece about Fuad Ajmi. Uh, or for that matter, the the Palestine question, um, which is at the center of the piece on um, on Edward Said, and also the reported piece about uh, the actor, the assassinated actor and director, uh, Giuliano Merhamis. Uh, the second section of the book uh, is about a group of Black writers who settled in Paris in the 1940s and 50s, not including James Baldwin, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> today the best known of that group, although he wasn't at the time. Um, and Baldwin, of course, uh, makes an appearance in in each of those pieces. He is a he he certainly leaves a trace in, in those pieces. But um, there are pieces about uh, Richard Wright, who was the you know who uh, arrived in Paris in forty uh, six and moved there with his family in nineteen forty seven. Uh, Chester Himes, the the great writer of um, noirs and and pulp fiction, who was part of the Richard Wright uh, circle um, at uh, at places like the Café de Tournon, and then a younger writer who was also a reporter, uh, William Gardner Smith, who represents a kind of more radical insurgent um, uh, politics. Um, but what interested me about all of those figures is that um, in Paris, they began to develop a more internationalist understanding of the problem of race and the position of Black Americans, not just in America, but in a world um, dominated by Western imperialism. Um, the, 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 the section after that is on French writers, the French writers who um, took part in the various uh, revolutions in French thought that broke out in the uh, 1950s and 60s, structuralism and post-structuralism and, and what have you. Um, and uh, and then I write about um, uh, filmmakers and artists, um, Claude Lanzmann, uh, the, the maker of Shoah, uh, the filmmaker Jean-Pierre Melville, who was a, a, a member of the resistance who went on to become uh, the great director of, um, of film noir um, in, in France in the 1960s and 70s, and, um, and Sartre. Uh, and mm -hmm. in each case, I'm writing about a specific kind of commitment in relation to um, uh, situations of political emergency, whether the, the Nazi occupation of France or, um, in the case of Sartre, his visit to the Middle East just before the 1967 war. And then I kind of wrap things up with more personal reflections, my work as a reporter and also my uh, my childhood as a as a well, as a chef, um, which in a sense is the story of my own, my first commitment, aesthetic commitment. Yeah, you guys should all know that Adam is a pretty extraordinary cook still. And um, as his reference to, to film indicated, a, a real cinephile. Um, so you, you mentioned the Middle East and France, and these are geographies that recur in the book. And I think in writers or missionaries, you sort of explain your coming to the Middle East and your personal attachment. And in the in the chef essay, you sort of talk about how you came to France for the first time. But I'm curious, you know, you as a thinker, I think are the kind of person who, regardless of whichever which sort of geography you had a personal attachment to, you would find these ripe ideas there and make these sorts of connections. But the Middle East and France, the histories that you are plumbing in these essays, they they don't seem incidental. There's something about these geographies and these particular histories that are drawing these, helping you draw these connections between intellectuals and ideologies. Um, and I'm curious if you could say a little bit about that. What is it about these regions and, and maybe the, 
the connection between these regions as well? Um, there, there are certainly connections between the regions in the sense that you know France was one of the, the great empires, the second you know second largest empire after the British Empire, and uh, for many years Paris was uh, was a center for intellectuals in the in the colonial world, in, including of course people who had been colonial subjects of France, but also um, uh, exiles from the Arab world. It, it, I mean, until recently, it was the, the the capital of Arab exiles. Today, increasingly, it's Berlin. But you know, my uh, I mean, in a sense, the the origin of my interest both in the Middle East and in France um, lies in uh, in my childhood. Um, uh, I uh, became very interested in in, uh, in French cooking, um, as I explained in the last chapter in the book, when I was about 10 years old, oddly enough. And uh, this became a full-blown um, infatuation um, uh, that then led me on a path towards um, uh, towards writing, actually, um, and towards and eventually to an interest in in the question of France's relationship uh, to Algeria, because it was when I was in France, um, the summer that I turned 16, um, when I was doing a stage at a restaurant in Burgundy, that I became aware that France had been this colonizer in Algeria, and that many of the people um, living in France today are Algerians who, you know, trace their roots to the you know, to the mother country, and not just not just Algerians, but also um, uh, French people who either lived in Algeria as pieds noirs, or who fought in the war, because you know over two million uh, Frenchmen uh, served in the uh, in the Algerian war from fifty four to sixty two. Now, uh, with with respect to the Middle East, um, you know, my my I, I grew up in a in a very liberal uh, secular Jewish family. Uh, neither of my parents uh, ever went to Israel. I think I was the first member, perhaps the first member of the nuclear family to go there. Um, and uh, so I didn't grow up in a in a very Zionist um, environment. But um, to grow up even in a liberal Jewish family um, in, in my generation, I was born in 1972. Um, uh, was to be exposed to a certain complacent idea about um, about Israel as a or the Jewish state as a sanctuary for people who had been persecuted, and you could absorb this without really um, examining it, without really knowing anything about uh, how Israel came into being or the uh, the expulsions uh, of uh, the Palestinian population and and all that occurred um, in the aftermath of 1948 and 1967, and I think that. Um, what happened in my case was that I had already become quite uh, drawn to uh, radical um, politics around race, around um, America's meddling in Latin America, around apartheid when I was uh, 13, 14, and so on. And then in 1987, when I was 15, uh, the, the first intifada broke out. And those images of, uh, of young Palestinians um, uh, throwing stones, really their their only weapon, um, uh, at Israeli tanks and being shot with rubber bullets, you know, this profoundly affected me and and led me to question some of the foundational myths, which in a rather lazy way um, I had accepted. Um, and uh, it, it took me some time before I began to write um, about Israel-Palestine. I was involved in the issue first more of a, as a student and as an activist, um, but after 9-11, I started to write pretty seriously about it and then increasingly to, to travel to that part of the world. Thank you so much.
I wanted to pick up on something that you talked about in your overview of the book, which is this the Black exiles in, in Paris section and the interesting exclusion of Baldwin. Could you talk about, you, you mentioned their development of internationalism and the sort of collision of ideas once they got to Paris. Some of that had to do with their perception of France's treatment of North Africans and the different sorts of multiculturalism that they encountered there. What was that experience of William Gardner Smith and Chester Himes and Richard Wright? Sure. I mean, Gardner Smith represents, I think, a, a really exciting break um, in a, a certain um, uh, uh, adulatory and indulgent view of France, which, which frankly was quite understandable. I mean, when 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 uh, when Richard Wright um, uh, went to France, it was uh, in, it was in nineteen forty six. He'd gone at the invitation of, uh, of Claude Levi Strauss, actually, who was you know was was working in an ambassadorial capacity in the states at the time. And uh, Wright had not even been able to buy an apartment in the village uh, with his Jewish wife. Um, they had to go to all sorts of ends to uh, simply buy a piece of property. And this is in the North, you know? And uh, so, you know, there really was no Mason Dixon line, as I think Malcolm X said, if you mm -hmm. were Black American. And so when Wright got to, to to Paris, he you know he, he he wrote an essay which was not published at the time called "I Choose Exile," and in that essay he said that he experienced more freedom in, in a block of Paris than he did in all of the United States. And so you know I think we have to remember this and and understand why it is that people like Wright and to some extent Baldwin, although Baldwin revised his own history of response to Paris, <laughs> why these writers um, embraced France and thought they'd found themselves in, in heaven. It's it's entirely understandable. Um, at the same time, you know, they were forced to reckon with France's relationship to its, uh, uh, to its colonies. Um, uh, right, uh, was treated uh, rather brusquely and even shabbily by, um, by Baldwin, uh, uh, in an essay called The Last Poor Richard. It's a great essay, but I think it's it's an, it's an unfair essay. It was published after Wright's death. And uh, and and uh, Baldwin argued that Wright had 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 chosen a fantasy um about France um because it suited him. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, Wright was very involved in Pan-African politics. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Negritude Journal with Aimé Césaire, um uh, uh, uh Présence Africaine. He organized in 1956 the first great conference of Black writers and artists. Um, and, and he also, um, much to his credit, I think, um, went to uh, uh, the colonial world and published three books on the subject. Uh, uh, Black Power, um, the first one in 53, he was in Ghana uh, before independence. Uh, the Color Curtain, which was about the Band a report from the Bandung Conference, and then White Man Listen. So he was certainly grappling with these issues at times in a somewhat fumbling way, um, but with, with, I think, real honesty um, and candor. Where he hesitated, however, and I think this um, speaks to the conditionality, the conditionality of the freedom that Black American intellectuals enjoyed in Paris, where he hesitated had to do with Algeria. Uh, Wright was certainly sympathetic to Al the Algerian independence struggle that, that broke out in November 54, but he didn't say anything publicly uh, because of a fear and a legitimate one that he would face expulsion from France, that he would be forced out of his sanctuary. Um, Himes, for his part, was much less naive, I think, about France. Um, 
And Gardner Smith, of course, is the one who becomes very outspoken on the subject of Algeria and publishes this extraordinary novel called The Stone Face, which is the first novel by any writer in any language about the October 17, 1961 massacre of Algerian demonstrators by uh, the French police headed by the prefect Maurice Papon, who was a, a war criminal in World War II. Um, so, and in a sense, you can chart a, um, a, a generational shift. You have, you know, Wright appearing in Paris and to some extent accepting the myth that, you know, at, at least um, tactic tactically. And then finally, uh, uh, William Gardner Smith, who represents a more insurgent generation that is uh, very sympathetic to the Black power revolts um, in, in America, and who sees Black Americans as, in his words, America's Algerians. So he's beginning to forge these links that um, in a way that is very, um, I think will be very familiar to people who read okay. writers like uh, Franz Fanon or Angela Davis or, you know, uh, C.L.R. James, you know, it's, uh, we see the birth of a much more internationalist perspective, um, which of course um, emphasizes the horrors of American racism, but sees it as not so much as exceptional, but as very much a part of a history of Western domination. Mm -hmm. I have to ask, and I don't mean this to be too like didactic, but do you think that there are lessons from that section from, from these people that you are profiling? Um, for all of us who are thinking through some of these questions of identity politics today. Well, I mean, certainly in, in I mean, I think that you know the reason I was so attracted to um uh to to Gardner Smith is that um his his book is um is a very um I think a very subtle and sophisticated critique of identity politics, not for the sake, not um, not on behalf of some sort of naive uh, colorblind ideology at all. Um, I mean, essentially what, what happens in this book, and I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, is that the is that Simeon Brown, the, uh, the protagonist, who's a journalist very much like uh, William Gardner Smith in Paris, um, uh, has found himself in this cir circle of Black expatriate writers, many of them modeled on the people I just mentioned, and he's very happy, and and he's able to date a white woman without attracting hostile stares. Um, uh, he's experiencing a, a freedom of movement that he's never known in his life, um, and he's someone who is haunted by a, a police beating in Philadelphia, which Gardner Smith himself experienced when he was a young man. Uh, but he eventually realizes that 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 there are other people you know, who do not enjoy this freedom. And they are the Algerians who are constantly menaced uh, by um, identity card checks, um, by by torture, um, by uh, the camps that they've set up in Algeria and in parts of France um, to detain people. And he, his conscience is stirred and he, and he, but he has to make a choice because he could either continue to align himself with his black writer friends who don't want to get involved and who will say things like, um, oh, the Algerians are just white. That's just, that, that, that has nothing to do with us. Or he can decide to break with his black brothers, if you will, and align himself with the people who are genuine, who are oppressed in France. And he makes the latter choice. And I, and I do think that, um, I'm not sure if it's a, if it's a, if it's a lesson, but I think that it's, um, it's certainly a tonic and I think um, challenges certain fixed essentialist ideas of, um, of racial solidarity and, uh, and emphasizes the ethical stakes 
in politics, which are not which do not necessarily follow neat racial lines. Thank you. One of the things you do really well in in these profiles is get into the all of the sort of grime and shine of of lives and and their swerves. And I, I think the two chapters that stuck out in that respect for me are the first on Fuad Ajami and uh, the chapter on Claude Lonsman. Um, mm. And you you call um, Ajami's um, sort of early defining book, the Ur Predicament, um, one of the most probing and subtle books ever written in English. Um, but this his life goes on in, in a sort of very different direction. And then you talk about how Lonsman kind of becomes trapped by, by you know, the way you sort of metaphorically, I think, describe Shoah is, is very affecting. You know, he kind of becomes trapped in this sort of uh, model or concept of his own creation. Um, can you talk about those two? I, I mean, I, I don't know if you would sure, put them in no, parallel, sure, but sure, for me, sure. that really stuck out. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and in a sense, I mean, you could argue that both, um, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, they're, they're very different stories, yes. but, but both yeah. of them have a, um, you know, there's a conversion aspect um, in both of them. I mean, both of them choose um, a kind of belonging, which, you know, I'm questioning. Um, yes. uh, Ajami is a, is a, is an interesting case because he is, um, you know, he's, he's, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he's a, you know, he's a Lebanese born um, intellectual from, uh, from uh, the Shia community, from a, a community that had been historically um, underdogs um, in Lebanon. They weren't the kinds of people who ended up with the big teaching gigs. Those were usually Sunnis or Christians. Um, and uh, he, he started out as a, as a, as a kind of young, a youthful um, supporter of, of, of Nasser. And, um, and then when he got to the United States, he became um, you know, a sort of sophisticated um, left-wing critic of American power. Um, he was close to uh, people like Edward Said, in fact. Um, uh, uh, his first book, um, The Arab Predicament, did, um, I think, represent uh, a turn in some ways because it's it's very much um, uh, a reflection on, on internal Arab intellectual debates. It, it doesn't. It doesn't exclude questions of imperialism, but, but it's very much focused on the way that Arabs write about their own politics, their own histories, their own prerogatives. And it's a very literary work. Um, and unfortunately, few people read it today because of how uh, Ajami would go on to distinguish himself. He, at some point, becomes um, a kind of cheerleader of of of, a, of, a, of American policy. Um, in the region, and by the time the uh, second Iraq War, or third, depending on you, how you count, uh, uh, be, uh, begins in 2003, um, he's being cited uh, by uh, Vice President Dick Cheney. Um, uh, in uh, he's uh, he's being quoted as saying that you know American soldiers will be greeted with rice and flowers um, by um, by uh, by the Iraqis. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my argument in the, in the Ajami piece, uh, rests on a number of different factors. I don't want to see him purely as a sellout, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think that's, that would be a very crude understanding yes. yeah. of, of, of his decisions. I mean, I, I, I don't support the decisions. I think they're quite troubling. Um, but I try to provide a more textured psychological portrait of what led him to this intellectual impasse. 
now, um, the piece on on Lonsman is also in some sense a conversion narrative because Lonsman is a he's a French Jew who uh, <laughs> is a, a, a member of the resistance um, in his teens, uh, quite a brave member. He, he certainly carried a gun. He you know he was a, he was a guerrilla of a kind, if you will, um, and. In the uh, aftermath of the Second World War, he gravitated to the circle around the around Tom Modern, Sartre, and Beauvoir. He became Beauvoir's very young lover. He was 17 years her, her junior. Sartre was very much aware of this. They traveled together. Um, and he was a fellow traveler of, of, of the left and probably was a communist, if not a Stalinist. But then um, after, uh, in large part because of his growing attachment uh, to Israel and his identification with the Jewish state, uh, Lonsman, uh, Lonsman uh, gravitates from Stalinism to a no less uncritical Zionism. And uh, it's not my <laughs> argument at all that Shoah is a Zionist film. I mean, I think, you know, Shoah is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary uh, film and one of the, uh, and a monumental work. Um, but there are certainly criticisms uh, that one can make of it. And I think the criticisms that one can make of his later work are even more severe. And I'm thinking in particular of the film that he made about the Israeli army, Sahal, which is a celebration, not just of the army, but of the cult of force in Israeli political life. Um, Lonsman, uh, the story of Lonsman, I think in some ways reflects larger shifts in the French Jewish community and the emergence of what um, the Algerian Jewish writer uh, Jean Daniel uh, described in a, in a short and very trenchant book as the Jewish prism. Mm -hmm. uh, at a certain point, it is, it is through this narrow, this ethno-national prism that Lonsman sees the world, um, understands uh, the politics of France and, uh, of course, the Middle East. And um, you know, my argument in that piece is that um, it, it it leads to a very impoverished vision. Hmm. Let me ask you about another controversial figure from the book, uh, Michel Welbeck, the French novelist. Right, right, right. No, <laughs> you I, talk I, about. I seem, uh, I seem to choose all of these, uh, all of these, uh, you know, attract morally attractive figures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> people who maybe in the beginning were fine, and at some point, anyway. Um, this is sort of a review, but obviously a sort of intellectual profile of Michelle Welbeck through the book Submission. Um, I love the first sentence of, of this chapter. Michelle Welbeck's novel about a Muslim takeover of France is a melancholy tribute to the pleasure of surrender. So who is Michelle Welbeck and why did you want to write about him and include him in this book? Right. I mean, you know, I make no apologies for Welbeck because he's, <laughs> he's pretty wretched and I and I think probably has been so all along. But um, he is um, there's no doubting his talent as uh, as a writer um, and uh, particularly the way that he chronicles French bourgeois life. He's caustic. He's funny. His his novels are very, very well observed. I mean, if you want to get a sense of the surfaces of French life in you know the 1990s, and aughts, you could do worse than, than reading some of Welbeck's uh, novels. Now, the reason that I chose to write about him at that time uh, is that um, his book was published, I think, on the day of, or maybe the day after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Um, and so it was you know, quite remarkable that a book envisioning 
um, you know, a uh, the takeover of France by a uh, by an Islamist party uh, could have been published at the time um, of those attacks. And of course, because of that, it was widely understood to be um, an Islamophobic book. Um, another reason, of course, is that Welbeck himself had made all manner of um of repellent remarks about about islam as a as a religion and he'd even invented this story that his um that his mother i, I didn't know this at the time it's actually a fiction that his mother uh, a soissant huitard a, a kind of 60s hedonist had converted to uh, to islam and even wore the hijab and so on this was this story was a complete fiction <laughs> um so you know in a sense it was an irresistible topic and i think it became yeah. you know, more fascinating topic for me when I actually read the novel and realized this actually isn't an attack on Islam. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that um, I'm not defending uh, uh, Welbeck or certainly not his politics, but the novel is much more interesting than that. And it really is a um, in the tradition of French novels that have used Islam um, to um, investigate and um, and make light of, of of France, particularly of 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 you know French decadence. Um, mm -hmm. Why is there this this pleasure in surrender um, in this novel? It's because the French are tired. They're unimaginative. <laughs> they have no political alternatives to put forward. And by contrast, the Islam represented by this um, Tunisian French uh, politician, the son of a of a of a of a grocer or a pharmacist, I can't remember. The Islam that he's promoting seems quite dynamic. It has lots of support from the Gulf countries. It has a project. Where is the project in France? There is none. And so, as you read the book, um, and uh, it's it's told as the kind of um, discovery on the part of um, the hero, who's a, a French academic, that this takeover actually has been happening for years and that all of these reputable French intellectuals have secretly converted to Islam, recognizing it as a superior force. Now, um, you know, so I just, I, I thought that the book would offer me an opportunity to talk about Welbeck, to talk about the whole issue of, you know, French Islamophobia, which is, which is real, which is extremely deep and, and uh, which I've written about elsewhere. You know, this is one of a number of pieces in this book that were inspired in a sense by political events that were happening simultaneously but which are either only uh mentioned glancingly or not mentioned at all i'm usually right. thinking about when i'm even when i'm writing a you know a literary essay i'm usually thinking about some political uh backdrop i mean you we were talking earlier about about uh, the question of identity politics there's no doubt that my attraction to writers like uh, gardner smith or for that matter richard wright or Edward Said, in fact, mm -hmm. um, was motivated partly by some of the discursive shifts that we've seen in um, American politics around issues of identity, language, and so forth. Definitely. And for those of you in the audience who may not know, Adam has also written wonderful, very sort of timely newsy pieces as well in LRB um, that are very much sort of pegged to the moment uh, of different things that we're experiencing, including the George Floyd protests in 2020. Um, we should also, you mentioned um, Fanon a couple of times, uh, we should let people know, and I think it was in the chat as well, that Adam has a wonderful book about Fanon coming out next year. And um, very relevant to a question from the audience, he also has an edited volume about music 
um, coming out in the near future. Um, so uh, Peter, I think, is going to return, and um, we would like to take some audience questions. Um, we're going to start with this question I referenced from Aaron Cohen about music. Um, Peter, do you want to read that for us? Yeah. So uh, good to see Adam in the audience. Um, he eagerly awaits Adam's writing on music, but meanwhile, he asks, have Adam's thoughts on music informed the way he thinks about the authors he describes in Writers and um, Missionaries? It's a great question. And um, I, I mean, I think he's right. I think there is a relationship between the music essays and the essays that I have published on, on writers. The, in my music essays, I'm in some ways approaching the musicians that I write about as, as thinkers. And I, although I wouldn't say that I'm approaching these writers as musicians, as it were, I, I am very interested in what, um, you know, could be called, I mean, in French, the, the term would be uh, in petite musique, a little music, some kind of, you know, I'm interested in, you know, the texture of their voices. I'm as interested in formal questions as I am in questions of, um, of politics um, and ideas. And, um, you know, uh, a friend, uh, a friend of mine said of a of a of a writer that that um, asked Susan Sontag that she was a she was an esthete among moralists and a moralist among esthetes. And um, <laughs> I'm not comparing myself to Sontag, but I I, I relate to that statement intensely. Um, when you guys order this book, um, you'll also see in the acknowledgments that Adam has a long list of musicians that he's inspired by. So <laughs> I think to, to Aaron's point, I think Adam is someone who's, who's sort of always thinking about music. Um, as we wait for more audience questions, um, I'll ask a couple more and maybe you have some more, Peter, as well. Um, Adam, I was question about, I was curious about um, a little bit of a question of form about, you know, this, this book being this collection of profiles, but obviously with each person connected to an idea. Um, can you talk about your approach to sort of biography? Because I think like, especially since you've written the Fanon book, um, each of these pieces has this great combination of you know, sort of enough background to get the reader sort of settled, um, background on also the work of art or the piece of writing that this person has produced. Um, but obviously, you know, most of it is kind of then zooming out into the world of ideas. And um, I think we, you, you mentioned this also in the book a little bit, but I think like in, in terms of the way that we do literary education or other sorts of analysis these days, it's very sort of biographically centered. Um, so I'm curious if you could talk about that as yourself, how have you evolved in your to biography as an essayist, as a as an author, what should the place of biography be as we're sort of trying to navigate these these intellectual um, ideas? Yeah, no, I mean it's a really good question. I, you know, I I came of age in an era in which there was no more uh, degraded form of criticism than biographical criticism. I think it was regarded um, as almost contemptible. I mean, you know, the last thing you were supposed to to do was to um, uh, was to I, I won't even say reduce even to relate a person's <laughs> work to their life the life was really not relevant um the work was was you know the work was on the page and um uh, you know I, you, you're probably familiar with um with 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 Derrida's remark that there is no outside text you know there's nothing oh to text <laughs> um now um you know as I as I as I explained in in you know in the introduction to this book that I read earlier you know I was never entirely uh convinced by this I mean I I do think that the the life struggles um of writers and artists 
really matter. You know, I, I, you know, bringing something into being is, is no simple matter. Um, there is, and there's a story there. And the story does not entirely account for the content of the work, the shape of the work, mm-hmm. its contours. Um, and I think that, um, uh, if anything, there's been a kind of overcorrection, certainly in popular culture, which sometimes would have us believe that the biography is all that matters and that the the work is almost a supplement to the biography. And as I, I think I say in the introduction, <laughs> that this idea that somehow like, you know, that um that that you know that art is created out of, is created out of trauma the way that butter is whipped out of cream. I mean, this is certainly not true. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, so um, but um you know, given that so many of the figures that I'm writing about were 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 actually engaged as public figures in important political questions of their day, having to do with the Cold War and uh, decolonization, civil rights, um, uh, the memory of the Holocaust, the uh, Palestinian struggle for liberation, and so on, I, I couldn't not write about um, about their stories. But you know, as you'll see in a piece like. Um, you know the essay on 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 Edward Said. You know ultimately, what what interests me about Said is less the explicit positions that he held. I'm not looking to him as some kind of uh, model whom we must follow. What interests me is what he did with this inheritance. You know mm-hmm. how he created this ideology or this structure of feeling that that he at one point called Palestinianism, and how um, his relationship to music um, figured in his understanding of contrapuntal criticism. So, you know, I think that, you know, uh, to put it very crudely, I'm interested in a biographical criticism that is dialectical and that is alive to form and that understands that, you know, people, um, you know, when they create art, when they uh, compose music, um, when they write books, they're they're doing they're they're engaging in a in a very in a creative act. Um, mm-hmm. It can't simply be gleaned from whatever experiences they've had. Thank you. Peter? Yeah, you know, I, I've got a, it's it's a personal question about narrative structure. And then when you're, you're writing in English or reading in English or then reading in French, have you noticed psychological shifts? Have you noticed, you know, the way that you're perceiving and anything that might happen in the interim going between one language and another? Mm. Um, well, there's no, there's no question that, that the experience of reading another language, um, is different from the experience of reading it in translation and that, um, you know, uh, you become, I don't want to say that you become another person, but you experience yourself very differently in another language. I mean, of course, when you first start to speak another language, you experience yourself once again as a child. Right, it's a, it's that very embarrassing experience of of learning a language and being limited in the extent to which you can express yourself and being forced to use you know all manner of very uh, simplistic phrases. Um, but I think that there's no question that my relationship to the French language, um, which comes through you know reading through travel and through um, friendships with people with whom I really don't speak English that this, you know, has really deeply informed um, the writing that I do on French subjects. And, and, 
and I think it's also shaped my intellectual outlook um, in many ways, and 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 possibly my understanding of form as well. I've never really, although there are certainly writers in the Anglo-American tradition who I deeply admire. You know, um, uh, there there and uh, there there. I mean, there are many. Um, uh, I I do feel an affinity with French critics that might be a bit deeper. Mm. So, so yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Aaron has another question along with Jean-Pierre Melville. Were there other non-documentary filmmakers you considered featuring in writers and missionaries and what makes Melville such a standout figure that he would be included in the book? Mm. Well, um, I do think that um, I mean for for me Melville is one of is one of the great visionaries of cinema. I mean you know if cinema is a dream, then I mean he really is one of the great dreamers. I mean he comes up with a with a whole grammar that you know is almost unprecedented. Um, there was a I remember um, Melville once said when his films were described as Bersonian, in other words as as um, reminiscent of the work of the great uh, Catholic filmmaker Robert Bresson, he replied by saying, no, it's Bresson who is Melvillian. <laughs> now, um, and, and if you look at the dates of his films, um, I mean, his first film, uh, The Silence of the Sea, uh, Silence de la Mer, was, was, uh, came out in, I think, 1947. Um, there, there's an argument there. And um, I think that, you know, going back to Aaron's question about music, um, there is... There is an aura and a mesmerizing quality to Melville's work that has always, you know, really moved me. And and then of course there is Melville's story. You know, Melville is a is not his real name. It's Jean Pierre Grumbach. Uh, he's a he's a French Jew who joins the resistance under um, the pseudonym, uh, a tribute to his favorite author, uh, Herman Melville. And um, uh, and his films, even the, the the crime films, you know, films like uh, Le Samurai and Le Doulos and uh, and um, the you know the Red Circle, these films about crime are very much permeated with his wartime imagination, with with, with his with his understanding of what he called you know the, the Army of Shadows, the uh, the the wartime underground, and so. Um, to me, Melville fit into this book because he's someone who, you know, who commits himself early on to the resistance against fascism and then becomes this um, irascible, brilliant, hermetic and stubborn filmmaker who, although he's known as, you know, the father of the new wave, is really a very solitary figure. And that's true of a lot of people in this book. A lot of people in this book are very solitary. They 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 stick to their visions. They're sometimes quite uh, quite difficult and prickly. And and Melville certainly was. Now, yes, uh, were, are there other French filmmakers who could have fit into this book? Uh, there are, and I you know hope to get to them eventually. I mean, I'm uh, you know very passionate about uh, certainly about filmmakers like uh, like Godard and uh, Maurice Piala, Agnès Varda. Um, uh, there, there are many. I mean, I could go on, but um, uh, at the time, I was drawn to uh, and to Melville, and um, and found that there was a story that really hadn't been properly told. So, uh, N. B. 
says, Adam mentioned that many of these pieces are the result of commissions in constructing this collection of essays into a book. Did he consider including non-male identified authors? It's a good question. I mean, the fact that, you know, I have written, uh, there's only, there, and it's true, and I address this in the introduction, there's only one woman who is uh, the subject of a chapter, and that's Arwa Saleh, who is a, a, a very brilliant um, Egyptian writer who was part of a, a Marxist-Leninist uh, group, and then who, in her disillusionment, wrote this, um, uh, you know, fascinating critique of her of her comrades uh, before committing suicide in the 1990s, and it's it's an extraordinary book. Um, I have you know written about a number of uh, women uh, intellectuals and artists like uh, Adrian Piper and, and Nina Simone and others, but um, uh, for one thing, um, uh, they did not fit into the conception, the categories that I chose for this book, and some of those essays will appear in a subsequent volume, certainly in my jazz book. Um, and and the, the person who asked the question is right. I mean, uh, you know, the, as I said, they were commissions. And most of the commissions I was getting from the London Review of Books were for writers who were male. And I'd be the first to admit that in a very different kind of book could be written um, with a uh, list of predominantly women intellectuals. And uh, so I I I don't I don't seek to defend it. It's it's a fact, and uh, you know therein lies the limitation. On the other hand, uh, the question of gender is very much a part of this book. Um, mm -hmm. If you read the essays on Alain Robrier or Jean-Pierre Melville or certainly Chester Himes, I write extensively not just about uh, female uh, writers, including uh, Beauvoir and Patricia Highsmith and others. But I write about issues of male violence and chauvinism and um, and what today would be called toxic male behavior. So it's a it's I would say that the 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 individual chapters are informed by a lively interest in feminism, um, even though the subjects are male. There are editors in the audience. We are counting on you to commission more pieces about <laughs> non male identified authors. Um, I think we're going to wrap up pretty soon. Um, I might ask one last question, and if the audience has anything more, please chime in. Um, Adam, I just want to return to what we started with, which is this question of writers and missionaries, or writers or missionaries. Um, you know, in, in discussions we've had, you know, we talk about this, this struggle of having political commitments, wanting the world and ideas to sort of go in a certain direction, but not necessarily wanting to just be a sort of cheerleader or propagandist in our work. Um, but sometimes it feels like it's very important to win, you know, and, and so I'm curious if you wanted to give an example or elaborate on that a little bit. Um, you know, what is the role right now of a public intellectual or a writer um, with political commitments, with desire for the world to be a certain way? Mm, sure. I mean, I, I I don't think that it's um that it's a choice really between um between uh, advocacy and um, an analytic uh, description. And I and I think that um, by being uh, faithful to your understanding of the world and its complexity, um, you can also be an advocate. I mean, I, I frankly, I mean, I think that uh, uh, the example of the person who's interviewing me is is a, is a, is a striking one. I mean, Tammy is someone yeah. who you know consistently publishes pieces that enlighten and inform, even as they point to 
other alternatives to, um, you know, to um, suppressed alternatives and to, um, you know, to popular struggles and to the stakes for justice. This is, this is, it, it is possible. Um, people do it. And, and I try to do it um, uh, as well. Um, so I don't think that um, the choice is ever between uh, between cheerleading and being some kind of cool-headed an, uh, analyst. At the same time, you know, I've just found in my own case that um, that coolness and dispassion can sometimes be your most effective instruments uh, of critique. Mm. I you know, I have you know I ex I may experience outrage. But I don't think outrage is very interesting on the page. And so if I'm, <laughs> if I'm writing about, except, except in a novel, in a novel, it can be actually, <laughs> um, you know, a novel, maybe recounting someone's, um, you know, uh, a temper tantrum or, or, or wild, mm -hmm. but it, it's not interesting on the page in criticism. And so if I'm writing about, um, you know, uh, let's say, um, a racial uh, atrocity in the states, um, or if I'm writing about, um, you know, Israel's latest uh, military raids in, um, you know, in the West Bank or in Lebanon or in Gaza, um, sometimes just describing what happens and, okay. and providing um, an account that is deeper and more historical and more grounded in sources of information that are seldom disclosed in the mainstream press. Would be more effective than um you know than than expressing horror i think horror mm. speaks for itself thank you so much for that sure. um i think we can we can end on that note of of counsel and um thank you so much adam this has been such a pleasure um everyone please again do order this fantastic book you'll learn so much and the writing is so beautiful and um it's so accessible um to all of us um peter thank you so much for having us tonight. Um, and thank you all for making time this evening. It was great. Thank you so much. It was terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.